Good morning. So before we jump in this morning, I, um, I want to tell you why we are walking through the book of 1 Peter for the next three months. First, most scholars think that 1 Peter was written to mostly Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who were not dealing with formal sort of state-sponsored persecution, at least not yet. Um, that would come later. As commentator Dennis Edwards puts it, they were likely dealing with alienation, shame, slander, and other abuses. In other words, much of what they were dealing, what they were facing, is not all that different from the kind of things that we can face today, although I'm sure they were dealing with it on a bit more intense level. We can face it in the workplace, we can face it at school, we can deal with it in the neighborhood, and sometimes we can deal with it even in our own homes. And second, one of the things Peter is dealing with is, is what it means to be, for us as followers of Jesus, to live under, in his case, the thumb of Rome, to live within the Roman Empire. Peter refers to Rome as Babylon in the next to last verse of the letter. Babylon is also used in the book of Revelation to refer to, this, to Rome. We're going to talk more about that when we begin our series in the book of Revelation uh, in the fall, but Babylon and the mentioning of Babylon, the history of Babylon, goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 10 and 11, uh, and that is where uh, the Tower of Babel, the infamous story of the Tower of Babel takes place. Later, Babylon was also the place where, uh, where the people of Judah were taken into exile. And so since that time, Babylon has always stood in for any city, any society, any uh, empire that was opposed to God. So in a sense... To one degree or another, every society, every empire is Babylon. And that includes the United States of America. Which reminds me of, I heard an uh, uh, author and uh, pastor, he's not a pastor, he's, uh, he was a professor in sociology, uh, speaking, Tony Campola speaking one time, talking about the United States is Babylon, and he said this, he said, I happen to like our Babylon better than some other Babylons, but it's still Babylon. Kind of the way I feel. And Babylon is everywhere, all the time. And we, we need to know how to live there in, in Babylon, in a society that maligns us or misunderstands us or alienates us or worse. First Peter lays the groundwork for life in Babylon in the first century and in the 21st century. So last week, Pastor Kurt opened this series of sermons with the uh, first 12 verses of First Peter chapter 1. The first two verses greet a scattered group of Christians whom Peter refers to later as exiles and foreigners, strangers. To say that these early Christians were scattered is to describe them and us in terms that were used to describe the people of Judah after they had been taken into exile in the Old Testament. Some of them later returned home to the promised land. Others were scattered across the region to wander in a land not their own. They were strangers in a strange land. Peter wants his readers to know that though they are foreigners and exiles, God has given them a three-part gift. When we come to faith in Christ, we are born into a living hope, an inheritance that is kept safe for us, and for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. We are born into a living hope, into an inheritance that is kept safe for us, and for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. This three-part gift <clears throat> is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ and in his future return, but it's more than that. 
Going back to last week's passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pastor Kurt sent me an email early uh, in the week to ask me if I could make room in my sermon to cover all the verses he couldn't get to last week. <clears throat> now, the truth is, there are always verses we can't get to on a Sunday morning, always. Uh, scripture is uh, almost endlessly deep and fascinating. We can go to it, we can read it a thousand times, the passage a thousand times, we can preach or teach on it several times, we can always come back and see something that we didn't see before. We simply can't exhaust all that a passage has to say in one sermon or in one Bible study. Well, <clears throat> one of the things I was fascinated with last week that Kurt could not get to and still get to everything he, he felt he needed to get to uh, is these two verses. Because of what we believe and where and in whom we put our hope, Peter says, we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I have questions. First, what does that even mean? Second, are we? Are we, are you, am I, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? And if we were, could we even describe it or name it? It's inexpressible. That word, inexpressible, is only found here in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it literally means unspeakable. Nothing else in all of the New Testament is described using this word. Joy. The joy that comes to us through faith is the only inexpressible reality found in the New Testament. More literally it reads, we rejoice with joy unspeakable. He really means this. Likewise, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Jesus prays to the Father God in John 17, 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Joy matters. Joy is important. Do we have it? Are we tapped into it? How do we do it? In their book, The Other Half of Church, author and psychologist James Wilder and author Michael Hendricks say that joy is not strictly an emotion, but a supra-emotion, because it can go on top of and connect with other emotions, even sadness and fear and anger. Joy is not merely happiness, but the two are related. Maybe we are filled with joy, but we're simply not in touch with it. Or maybe we've allowed other things to crowd out our joy. Joy is a choice to tap into the reality of who God is, the promises he's given us in Jesus, and where all these things are headed. It's a choice to see the big picture of what God is doing in the world, even in the midst of our suffering. Authors Wilder and Hendricks say that we cannot choose to be more joyful any more than we can choose to lower our blood pressure very popular a few years ago, say, choose joy. Someone even preached a sermon here. It wasn't me. Choose joy. I mean, if you've got to choose, I say choose joy. But we can't just make joy happen by choosing it. The first step to training ourselves in joy, according to these authors, 
is simply to practice gratitude. You may not realize it, but we're in a society right now that really doesn't know a thing about gratitude. Gratitude does not make the news very often. So we practice gratitude. We simply reflect on or consider the people, the relationships, the events, the provisions God has given us, and we give thanks. We just pause 15, 20 seconds, and we think about it, and we give thanks. We, We dwell in it for a bit. Do that over time. We will be transformed, and joy will become more and more of a reality for us. What matters most for us this morning, however, is why we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In verse 9, Peter says, it is because we are already receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The result, where we are headed, is already here. We're already receiving it. You don't have to wait. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is now. But so is Babylon. Babylon is now as well. The, the, The new age has already dawned upon this present age and the two overlap because in Christ we, we, we stand, we live, we struggle in that overlap. And this life in the overlap, this reality that the kingdom is now and that it gives us an inexpressible and glorious joy, all of it speaks to the word therefore in our passage this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Let's just read the first few verses here. <clears throat> Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed and is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So right away, we notice that all the wonderful territory that is covered in the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1 was setting the stage for action on our parts, for a response. And Peter gives us three exhortations, three imperatives to live by. He's going to give us more in the weeks and the passages to come, but today there are three. Put your hope in Jesus and in his future return. Be holy in all you do now. Live in reverent fear as you live your lives here. Tapping back into Peter's introduction, we can put our hope in Christ because of his resurrection, because of the inheritance that we will receive when he returns, and in the coming and ultimate salvation that God has in store for us, and the reality that we are already receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It's already ours, it's already happening, it's already transforming us. Peter's first exhortation is to put our hope in the fullness of grace we will experience when Christ returns. Now it begs the question for each of us, for all of us, where is our hope? Where do you, where do I put my hope? What do do we look to that gives us the, the strength to endure, to thrive, to make it? So when I was trying to think of a way to bring this down to earth a bit, I did a little bit of Facebook research, which isn't the most scientific way to do things, but I asked parents and teachers and educators and administrators about the impact 
the coming of summer vacation has on students. Now, I need to tell you, the reason I ask this is because I know what it did to me when I was a kid. I know what Christmas vacation did to me when I was a kid. Into high school, my parents will tell you, I would get sick and throw up. That's the impact they had. I was so excited that I was got too much information, but now you know. <laughs> so I thought I would ask, get a little feedback. How would you describe it? Turns out I might have been better off asking the kids. <clears throat> One teacher wrote, hard to describe. It starts when they get back from spring break. It gets really bad after state testing. They get wiggly. They don't pay attention, rush through work, more behavior problems in the hallways, and that's just the teachers. <clears throat> Several people mentioned the challenges they face as parents or teachers when students are ready to be outside and elsewhere. And this is, this is only fair, of course. It is parents and teachers who have to deal with these very real challenges of kids who are ready to move on to the next thing before it's time, ready to move into the summer before summer is here. All those challenges are real. But if I ask the kids, we might get a different picture. They might speak of what they're going to do for the summer, where they are going, how they're going to spend their days, what they're most excited about. Katie Travis here at ECC told me that her daughter Millie's class was counting down the days until summer using the letters of the alphabets, with each letter standing for something they are looking forward to. That's what I have in mind. Millie and her classmates are living into the summer even before the summer arrives. They are putting their hope into the day when they get to the letter Z. But they are not only putting their hope in the future. By counting down, by dreaming of all they're going to get to do, they are already receiving the end result of something good. They are living into it, they are imagining it, and their future hope is transforming the way they see the world, the way they live in it. Like students who know that summer vacation is close at hand, we too are called to live in the world as those who know that Christ's return and the, the final and full expression of the kingdom of God are imminent. The inexpressible and glorious joy that we have been given empowers us to live kingdom lives even now because we live in the overlap. We have one foot in Babylon and one foot in the new Jerusalem. And if we're doing it right, we live differently than we did before we came to know Christ. We live differently than the world around us where our values will clash with the values of Babylon. We do not live as those who think Christ is never coming back, but as those who know that he will return, as those who know that the kingdom of God is at hand and that in the end God will dwell with us and we will dwell with God and there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order has passed away and everything is being made new. I'm going to skip over the middle one of those three, being holy. I'm going to skip over that. We're going to come back to it. Peter says, live out your times, number three there, as foreigners here in reverent fear. What, what does it mean to fear God? <clears throat> to fear God in this sense is not to be afraid. It is to stand in awe. It is to revere God. This is not like the cowardly lion running away when confronted with a great in terrible odds. I want to show you a picture I took of Kim when we were out west. That's not Kim. That's a joke. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it's Photoshop too. But, uh, I mean, I would be fearful there. But we're not talking about the kind of fear that's afraid so much as we're talking about the kind of fear that is not careless. 
that is aware. Reverent fear and awe. Before me, when I was at the Grand Canyon, was this stunning and immense canyon. It inspired me, but it also caused me to fear not the canyon. I wasn't afraid of the Grand Canyon, but I wasn't careless either. Like my grown children who insisted on shenanigans, sitting on the edge, dangling their feet. There is fear, and there is carelessness, and there is wonder and awe and reverence. After exhorting us to put our hope in the coming of Christ, to be holy as God is holy, and to live our lives in reverent fear, Peter continues in verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter calls to mind for them their former way of life and our former ways of life. Christ has redeemed us from those things. And that that word redeem can sound to us like a very churchy word. But it's likely that when Peter's first audience read or heard this word, their minds went to the imagery of enslaved people who had been redeemed, who had been purchased from slavery with things that were perishable, silver and gold. You, we, however, were redeemed by something far more precious than silver or gold. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross. And then Peter takes that imagery of redemption and he transformed it into the imagery of numerous sacrifices that we find required in Old Testament law. Jesus the one sacrificed on our, ha- our behalf was a lamb without blemish or defect. And the most notable sacrifice would have been offered on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the yearly sacrifice in which all the sins of the people of Israel were atoned for. And what all those imperfect sacrifices could only do annually and only in part, Jesus' death has done once for all time and once for all of humankind. Then Peter takes things even further into the past. Beyond Jesus' death on the cross, beyond the sacrifices of the Old Testament, he says of Christ in chapter 1, verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world? God has been playing the long game for a very long time. We can have hope by looking to the future and what God will do when Christ returns. We can have hope by remembering Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And we can have hope by looking back into the deep, distant, cosmic past, knowing that God has had this in mind from the very beginning, and he has followed through. Finally, Peter writes, Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So I want us to notice something. The hope of the believer in verse 21 correlates to the hope of the believer in verse 13. And in fact, what we may not notice is that this passage has a chiastic structure. Now, Kurt and I were teasing Pastor uh, Christian the other day when we realized that while he and I and perhaps some others have taught you about chiasm and chiastic structure in the past, the only person anybody ever remembers talking about it is Christian. Either way, I'm glad it caught on. So as a review, simplest possible definition of a chiasm or chiastic structure is this. It is a rhetorical device or stylized writing effect 
in which the second part of a sentence or passage is a mirror of the first. In which the second part of a sentence or passage is a mirror of the first. And many biblical authors will then place something at the very center of this mirror, the center of this structure, so that we see it, so that we pay attention to it. And we could view this device as a sort of, and you've heard this before too, literary sandwich of sort with the meat, the most important part, in the middle. And so for our passage then, a chiasm looks like this. The believer's hope, top and the bottom, next in, the revelation of Christ, the letter B. C, the reminder of sinful living, prior sinful living. And then D, in the middle, the call to holiness based on God's character. That's at the center of this whole passage. That we are to be holy as God is holy. So now we come back to the second of those three exhortations Peter gave us. Be holy in all you do. To be holy is to be set apart. It is to live in ways that are consistent with God's character and God's word. And to do so because our future hope, our future salvation is already upon us. Changing us. Renewing us. Holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts or a bunch of impossible rules. Holiness is something we become. Holiness is something we become. Holiness is not about self-control. It's about surrender to the Spirit of God. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. My heart and my mind this morning go to those of us who, for whatever reason, may think of God as a demanding ogre, as an old man with a furrowed brow and a cane raised above his head, ready to smash us when we slip up or fail to live holy lives. Just because we don't obey all the rules. But that is not God's way. That is not God's character. And I know that. It's not Jesus' character. And Jesus is the revelation of who God is. God's way is not to force us to obey all the rules. God's way is to transform us over the long haul into the kind of people for whom it is our nature to live as God teaches us to live. God's way is not to force us to obey all the rules, all the do's and don'ts. God's way is to transform us into the kind of people who will, by nature, live the way God wants us to live. We will find great joy in it. Now our closing song, we're going to sing in just a few minutes, is an older one, one that many of us will know, and in it we're going to proclaim that what God wants for us and what we want from God is to be holy and to be faithful and to be righteous. Now we could hear this as a demand to keep the rules, but we need to come back again and again to the chorus. So take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. I invite you to join with me in a moment of uh, silent prayer. I will close this and then we will sing. God, we invite you, your spirit, to come and speak to us now. We open ourselves up to you, ask whatever you would want to say to us or draw to our attention that you would do it now in this moment.
Oh God, wherever we are, <clears throat> wherever each person in, in this room or in the sound of my voice online, wherever we are in our understanding of these things and our understanding of our own holiness or lack of holiness, wherever we are, Lord God, in our understanding of who you are, God, would you transform us? God, would you remind us that the best gift we can give you, the best gift we can give ourselves, the best gift we can give all of our loved ones and the world in which we live is that we would become more like you. That we would live our lives and worship you with all that we have. That we would understand that holiness and faithfulness and righteousness are as much a gift to us as they are to you. God, I pray that you would reveal these things to us wherever we are in our understanding. Reveal your desire for us and reveal to us that it is actually our deepest desire as well. Help us, Lord God, to take whatever steps you might call to us to take as we sing, as we pray. We pray that you would be glorified, Lord. We pray that you would take this church body and make us into a truly holy people, a truly righteous people, a truly just people, a truly faithful people in all we do. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in Jesus' name.